The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning all together to sit under your Spirit's Word, His teaching to us. We pray that you would send Him to us now in clarity and in power to open our hearts, open our minds to what you would teach us, your people. So make make this passage clear here this morning and help us to think and and to see big things and to see them rightly in, in proper perspective. And out the other side of this, Lord, would you build up a people who are filled with truth and are filled with hope. Make that happen, Lord. Not just only filled with truth, that, that for sure, but filled with hope because of the truth. Make us to be a people like that this morning. Grow us. Be honored here by who we are, by what you do in our midst. So we pray, Lord, build us for our good and for your glory. Thank you. Amen. In 2004, country music artist Tim McGraw released a song called Live Like You Were Dying. The song tells a story, maybe you've heard it, popular song. It tells the story of a young man who, faced with a sudden illness that might take his life, he resolves to really live, to live and to, to live well. And some of that living includes adventures like skydiving and bull riding. It is a country song after all. <laughs> Probably in some verse he buys a truck and a dog, I don't know. But some of it includes other things like being a better husband, friend, as well as, as the song goes, finally reading the good book and taking a good, hard, long look at his life, what he's been doing. Those sorts of things. And the point of it all is, is a message directed ultimately to us, the listener. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. A point that in a lot of ways resonates with us and in a lot of ways is a valid perspective that we should embrace to some degree. And, and we talk about that and we want that to be, to be heard here. There's something there that we should live while we're living. We should embrace that to a degree. To a degree. Because there is a second part of that, a second perspective that we also have to embrace, one that we usually miss if we only hear messages like the one in that song. Notice, if you, th- if you think about it, to live like you were dying, where that pushes us, if, if you embrace that, it pushes us back into the stuff of this world and exhorts us grab it and suck the marrow out of it and live it. It's going away quickly, so so grab it and live it before it's gone. And that resonates with us. We actually like that call. We like to be challenged like that because it promises us, I think, what we really most want. 
a more delightful life here and now, a more pleasing, more appropriate, more pleasant, more pleasurable life here and now in this world. We like to be summoned to live our best life now. But there is another perspective that we need to hear, and I think these are they're both true. As I said, they're, they're both true, but I think we need to hear the second perspective maybe a little more because it doesn't come as naturally to us, and in fact, I think we often want to push it away and even, even reject it. A perspective that does not point us back into the stuff of this world to embrace it all the more, but which inclines us away from the stuff of this world. takes us in the other direction. It turns our faces away when we come to realize that all of this here is just so much grass withering and flowers fading. So many sandcastles built on the beach as the tide is coming in. And when it's all over, we step into eternity. We need to think about that perspective also. I need to think about that carefully with, with sober-minded self-control and with prayerful hope. Like I prayed, I, I hope that we come out of this with some grasp of truth, the sober-minded, thoughtful, careful, and hope. Both. As we look at this passage in 1 Peter 4, 5, 6, and 7, verses 5, 6, and 7, you're going to notice that it's, it's right probably at how your Bible is printed. It's probably right straddling two paragraphs because this is actually kind of the end of a point made a couple weeks ago and the beginning of a point I'm going to make next week. It's, it's kind of in the middle there and I'm, and I'm pausing here on this kind of this bridge because I don't want us to miss this point. I want us to hear it and even hear it at Christmas time. In some ways it might feel like this is a weird sermon to preach right now. We just sang these Christmas carols. We're, we're kind of talking about this warm fuzzy feeling and you're going to talk about death. Exactly. Exactly. Because we hear this with hope. What we're going to realize is the hope of Christmas is actually about what we're going to talk about this morning. So hear that. We need to think very carefully about what we're, what we're looking at here. And something I hope comes out of this that pushes us beyond, away from the stuff of the world, on towards something in the future some other world, and we need to hear that accurately and hear it with hope. That's what we're after this morning. In 1 Peter 4, verses 5 through 7. So let me read that passage, and then I'll draw two observations. Here are the verses, beginning in verse 5. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's our passage this morning. Two observations. Here's the first. The gospel is the Christian's hope for life after death. 
The gospel is the Christian's hope for life after death. It is our hope for life now, here, too, for sure. Yes. We talk about that a lot. I'm not going to say much about that now. But it's not ultimately and not even primarily about life here and now. Our hope is not ultimately and primarily hope for the here and now. We're looking beyond the here and now, beyond our own deaths. That's the point we're going to draw from verses 5 and 6. But first, we need to notice like, how we got to this point. If you recall, a couple weeks ago, I was looking at the beginning of chapter 4, and verses 1 through 4 are a command to Christians to arm ourselves with a, with a, a mental perspective. That we, like Christ, we in Christ are dead to sin, we have died to sin, and that is in our past now. We are done living life now for a collection of human desires and human feelings and human passions. We're done with sin. Especially the stuff like listed in verse 3 and verse 4, that's going to be very surprising to the people of the world all around us with whom we used to participate in all those things. That, that's who we used to be. We were like them. We pursued a life of pleasure and fun in all these ways and no more. And at first, that's going to make zero sense to those around us. And then they'll feel the implied judgment. And notice we're not in the passage. We're not saying anything to anybody else. We're just withdrawing from it ourselves. And they're going to feel the implied judgment in that. And it says we'll eventually turn to verbally malign us. Now, verse 5, however, but they will have to give an account to him, to the Lord, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. At this moment, feel the posture in that. It's, 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 it's a poised verse. At this moment, God is ready. He's about to judge. In the context, so it gets us to this point with thinking about judgment, particularly judgment of those who would malign us, of the non-believing world all out there kind of around Christians and maligning them. That's how we come to this point. And that judgment is imminent. It is almost here. God's ready. But as it talks about judging the living and the dead, suddenly that gets big. Because the living and the dead is everybody. That's me and you, Christian and non-Christian, it's everyone ready to be judged. And this judgment determines one's eternal destiny, eternal joy and fullness of life with the Lord, or eternal misery and suffering and anguish away from the Lord. Every single person faces that. And it is of infinitely great importance. It is more important than anything else that may happen to you or I here on this earth. The judgment that comes to each of us after we leave the earth is the thing that matters. And it's ready to happen. Maybe Christ comes soon. Maybe we die soon. 
maybe you don't die soon in the sense of this world. It's all a matter of perspective, though, right? Because if you've got 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years left, which you probably don't, but if, if you did, if you had that long left, compared to eternity, that, that's just a blink. All of us are soon leaving. We're moving on soon. In verse 6, that's why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. This verse is sometimes a little bit confusing, particularly if you don't track the flow of the thought and put yourself in the shoes of, of Peter's original readers. There's something there that the readers of this gospel heard and wrestled with. They, they knew that the gospel had been preached to them and that they had heard it and that they had believed it and they looked forward to God saving them from the judgment that was coming. You know, hallelujah. They hear the words of Paul in Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And they say, yes and amen. And then kind of like, uh, but wait a minute. Sin brings death, but in Christ, God gives life. And we know, by this point, we know some people who believed in Christ, at least we thought they did, and they're dead now. Huh. It seems like they still got paid the wage of sin. Shouldn't they have been spared that and given eternal life? If the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, shouldn't they have been given life, but they still died, and it seems like they got paid the wages of sin, so did they die in their sin, actually? And now you say that they're going to be judged? Are they going to be judged now? What's going on? That's a question that actually troubled numerous early New Testament churches. You can read about this in a couple different letters. You can think of Paul talking about this in Thessalonians or in Corinthians because it was confusing, particularly very early in the Christian church. Now, it's not really a question that we struggle with now on centuries afterwards. We understand more of these things, but they had a question. And so when Peter answers it in verse 6, he's not actually answering a question that we have directly. But what he says in answering it is going to, speak to us, and it lays out in front of us a universal truth that we need to face and embrace and then be encouraged by. What he says is that everyone, all people, face something in common, a judgment of our flesh, our sinful body of flesh. That's what physical death is, and that has not been lifted from the Christian. We die also. In all the same ways that everyone else dies. Because in this way, we are just the same as everyone else. Christian and non-Christian alike. This perishable body, think about your own perishable body of fallen corrupted, corruptible flesh. It is what it is. And it's not all that great. Think of, and maybe later this afternoon, read Psalm 90, a Psalm of Moses, 
an awesome and deep and important psalm where he talks in there quite a bit about all of our days, our entire lives being lived under the wrath of God. This is what he's talking about. The fact that all of our lives, you and I are about to die. God won't let it be otherwise, in fact. Because our fallen bodies of mortal flesh are broken and bent against God and under his judgment. And the gospel doesn't change any of that. Death is coming to us all. And that's okay. Even a good thing. Now, keep, keep a hold on this here. If you, if you kind of feel me like pushing down this, what seems like a dark tunnel with no end, there's, there's some darkness there, but there's an end here. It's true that we all are going to die. And the gospel doesn't change that. But that's actually okay and even a good thing because Look at yourself. This fallen body is a wreck. I'm a Christian. Yeah, most of you were Christians. Yes. It's a, that means that, that God has come and done something and God dwells within us by his spirit and is making us new. And we often talk about that and that's glorious truth. We are being made new. We are being renewed. We are being re, lots of, lots of those words, we're being brought back to a new and better life for sure. But come on, be honest. I'm a wreck. Do you have eyes to see that yet about yourself? Still Christian, that, that what we are is still fallen and still broken and still often an embarrassment and often a shame. It's often an affront to the God that we love and we wish it was different, but it isn't. And here I am and, ugh, right? Thank God that he won't let this me live forever. Like this. And thank God that he won't let the earth be forever overrun with the likes of me and you. We cycle out and we die. Thanks be to God. The gospel doesn't change any of that. But here's what the gospel does change. And why God preached it to those who are now dead. Not to keep them from dying, but to bring them back to life again. Different. You are about to die. But if the gospel is your hope, you are about to live again too. Not, not here, but in some place clean. And not in this fallen body that is perishable and busted in so many different ways, but to live in another resurrection body, sinless and unbroken. 
and not to live in some way bound by a blindness and, and, and twisted, but to live free and unhindered with, with the blinders taken off, seeing God as he truly is and communing with him personally. You are about to live in the realm of the Spirit like God does. Like the Lord himself does. The second half of the verse. We all die under the judgment of the flesh and we all live again in the Spirit like God does. You will be raised with a new and glorified body to live in God's presence forever. This is the Christian's true hope. Not to just live a more fruitful life here. Again, these two perspectives, indeed, God graciously does give us something that enables us to live, and we should live a more fruitful life here. But ultimately, our hope is not about this. It's about what's coming after this is gone. To live looking at the next life is your hope, Christian, and your privilege. That's what the gospel bought you. That's what Christ came to earth as a baby at Christmas to give you. Not just a better life here, a life there. That's what the gospel's about. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that by God's work in Christ, not by your own works, but by God's work in Christ, by his death on the cross, by his rising again from the dead, your sins are paid for and God judges you as in him righteous. And that then when you die, not until you die, but when you die, he will open the door to heaven to you and welcome you in and seat you at the table to feast with him and with all the people of God, new and clean, alive. That is what happened and what will happen to you all by God's design. It says here that the gospel was preached by whom? Preached by whom? Well, by people, yeah, sure. Somebody preached the gospel to you, and somebody has always preached the gospel to everyone who is a Christian. That's always been the way it's happened. But ultimately, it's preached by God himself. The gospel is by God's design. God sent his son, and from heaven he came and sought us. It's his plan. From heaven he came to go to the cross. He went to the cross so as to create a, a method of atoning for our sins, and then he sent out people in the power of his spirit to make the message known to you. And then he opened your eyes and your ears to hear it and to see it. God's the one who preached to you because God meant to save you, because God knew of the moment appointed for your death and the judgment that was ready to happen after, and God wanted you to live. We see this, and we, we must look at it, we must think about the reality of our coming death and judgment, but in that we should not see gloom, in that we, sh in that we should see hope, because all of it has been prepared by a God who meant to and actually affected your salvation 
to eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel for you by God's design. Death comes so that life can come after it. That's the judgment that matters. And as we sang already this morning, all fear of that judgment, all fear of hell from that judgment is forever gone off of you. That's good news. It really should be amen. It really should be amen. For as much as we talk about and like to think about the goodness of the Christian life here with the Spirit indwelling us as a down payment, we should think, what is it like to live with the fullness? For as much as we talk about how God is renewing us and making us new and making us back into the image of God, what is it like to be glorified? As much as we say the people of God, the family of God, with the Spirit indwelling in the midst of us here is a sweet community, what is it like to be in heaven? I don't know. I've never been there. but I can imagine a little bit. I can extrapolate, and you can too. And the first point, the, the point here in these verses is we should be like looking into this and say, and because of the gospel, I have a great hope. I'm going to die. And that's okay. Because I'm going to live. And I mean really live. And that's better. That's the truth for us personally. And the second point is something about everything else. Here it is. The finish line of this whole world is imminent. This is the second observation. The finish line of this whole world, of everything else, is also imminent. So verse 7 says, and then it commands us to be clear-headed about this truth. So let's, let's look at it and think about what is he saying here. The end of all things is at hand, says verse 7. What that means is not just that all things are about to be over, like at the end of a day or maybe at the end of a basketball game when the, the time expires, the clock clicks, clicks down, and then it's over and you run out of time. That, yes, but a little bit more here. This word for end is more like end goal. A place where all this is going, a conclusion. So you wouldn't say that midnight is the goal of the day. So it's a little bit different. So maybe think of a, like a race or a journey or a story that has a beginning and then everything in the middle of it is moving towards an end, a conclusion that's planned. That's what he's saying here. And all things have this one end. 
Peter clarifies that. All things all around us, every single bit of all of this is part of one big story. It's moving on towards a final destination. God created the world. And God made people in his own image. And they fell then into the bondage of sin, enslaved by sinful natures, doomed to die and face judgment. And from that moment on, the whole of the story is step by step how God's conducting this massive reclamation project. To renew the fallen and broken earth, to restore it, and to redeem people to bear his image. You can trace the waypoints of this story through the Bible because that's what the Bible is actually about. I can remember the first time that I realized that the Bible is a single story. I kind of thought it was like 66 stories. And you could kind of pluck out the pieces of like, there's the story of David, or here's the story of the ark, here's the story of Jesus. It was like a collection of stories. And I was further confused because they were often presented to me like that, just stuff kind of like chucked together. It's one story. Beginning and end. And everything in the middle is about how the beginning foretells the end and how we get there. You can trace the waypoints all throughout the Bible. It's the story of God's redemption. He saved Noah in an ark, and he called Abraham from Ur, and he rescued his people out of Egypt into the promised land, and he gave a law to guide them, and a, temp- a tabernacle to dwell among them, and a king to lead them, and prophets to teach them. But they still wandered and failed because, of course, all of that was actually setting up the need for Messiah. The suffering servant who would actually save them. Who wouldn't just teach them what they should do, but who would atone for sin when they didn't. Who'd go to the cross, this servant would, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, like God promised, and it happened. Died on a cross under God's curse, like God promised, and it happened. And he rose again on the third day, like God promised, and it happened. He ascended into heaven before the very eyes of his people, like he promised. And the outpouring of the Spirit, like he promised, it all happened. And Pentecost happened, and the great ingathering of the Gentile nations happened. We are proof of that. And what comes next? What's the next step? What's the next progression in this journey? The gospel will be preached to all the nations. Then what? The gospel will be preached to all the Gentile nations. Then what? And then the end will come. The planned conclusion. The finish line. The goal of all of this. Not just the story of the Bible, but the goal of all things. Of all of this. And all of our lives are connected to that story. We're all a piece of this this tremendously complex mosaic. The events of history, the big stuff you read about in books and all the little things of our little bitty lives are all together moving towards this conclusion. The Lord returns to the earth like he promised. Physically and bodily, Jesus comes and puts his two feet on dirt here. That's going to happen like he promised. 
And there are many details that, that follow that. We could spend a lot of time discussing them, but we can summarize all of it this morning just by saying that Christ returns and the world then faces judgment. His kingdom comes and his will is done, finally. And this world is destroyed with the fire of judgment and all who are not Christians, believers in the Jesus of the Bible and his cross alone, perish. And the new heaven and the new earth is established and the dwelling of God with people, his people, is accomplished. That's the conclusion, the end goal. And the point of this statement here is to say that is now at hand. That's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. It is imminent. Which is not a chronological statement, by the way, which is not saying like you can look at your watch and know when it's going to be. It's a statement about process. It's a statement of this is the last step of the journey. And every step leading up to this one has already been taken. There is nothing else pending. The next thing that happens is Christ comes. It could happen right now. It could happen in a thousand years. I don't know. But the point is, it's at hand. It's imminent. There's nothing standing between now and then. We are right at the threshold. And God brought to pass every other prior stage, didn't he? He's going to do this one too. Now, I say that in part because some of us don't know these things, but some of us do know these things, and it's probably worth like circling back in your own mind. Do I really believe that? Because there's, there's this dynamic that in, in a lot of Christians' minds, it, it's not, not really a, a rejection. It's more of just kind of a thoughtlessness about it. Like, I've never actually... Do you mean his feet are going to stand on the dirt? Uh, huh. Yeah. That's what it means. When Jesus left, he rose from the dirt up into heaven, and then the angel said, guys, the same way he goes, he's going to come back. It's going to be reversed. He's going to come back down. He's going to stand here. The Lord himself will descend, and we will see him. Huh. That is imminent. I don't mean it's going to happen before I'm done preaching. Maybe. But there's nothing else that needs to happen before it happens. That's what I mean. That's what the Bible means. And until it happens, we live in these last days, as the Bible describes it. The days at the threshold. Which means we should expect what? of this world. A world of challenge and temptation and pain. 
a world of challenge and temptation and pain. And delight and blessing, yes. But we need great discernment and strength to resist challenge and temptation and pain and to walk in holiness as dead to sin but alive to God as we just talked about. So much more could be said about this, but the picture is clear enough. The picture painted throughout all of the New Testament as it describes this time as we await the final step is crystal clear. Do you, do you see this? Jesus said, in this world we will have tribulation, challenge and temptation and pain. Do we see any of that now? Well, of course, sure. Is it as bad as it could be? No, of course not. But, but think about this. Is the arc of history bent towards godliness and holiness? Is it bent towards the love of Christ aflame in the human heart? And societies shaped by the truth of God's word and full of positive influences on us and on our kids and grandkids and inclining all of us towards the worship of God and of the Bible. Is that the way the arc of history is bent? No. It is not. These are like the days of Noah still. God is waiting patiently just long enough to save some more. But all around us is a world that is about to end. Be sober-minded and realistic about this. Think about it. Which incidentally is the two commands of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Two commands which really are basically the same command. The words are so similar. What he's saying is, get this and get a hold of this. Know it. Not just know it so that you know it. And certainly not know it just so that you're, you're sober-minded. Sober-minded is different than somber. Sober-minded is different than somber. Sober-minded is realistic and honest and clear-eyed. He doesn't want us to know it Sometimes there are things to be somber about when we face pain in the world, but he does not want us just to know it, and he does not want us to major on being somber. That's not, that's not the point by any stretch. Know this, see these things, grab them, know them, for the sake of your prayers. That's where the verse ends. Getting a grip on this, seeing this, will help you in your prayer life. It'll give you a prayer life, first off. Maybe you're, maybe it's like, help me with my prayer life. What prayer life? It'll give you a prayer life, first off. And then once you have one, 
It'll help it be more informed and invigorated. It will guide it. It will make it more earnest and more on target and more effective because there is always a correlation in our lives, in our prayer lives. There's a correlation between gripping prayer and being gripped by a situation that is difficult. Always. Prayer is meant to be the way that we commune with God, draw near to him, gain access to his presence and his power and his resources Prayer is always then driven by a sensed need. Look, check this in your own life. See, this is not true. When we don't pray, it's because we don't think we need to pray. Not really. I should, I don't need to. That's really what's going on in the middle of prayerlessness. I should, I've heard enough sermons about that, I've read enough of the Bible, I should, but I can get by without. I don't really need to. But watch what happens as soon as you suddenly find out I've got a disease, a loved one has been injured, I'm facing hardship, I've got some sort of a challenge. Watch what happens there at that moment. What happens is you begin to pray. You begin to cry out to God and say, help. We don't pray when really we think we have things under control and we think things really are going to be okay and we're sort of on cruise control and things are like basically tolerable. But when they aren't, we cry out to God and we pray. And I think it's for that reason that Peter says, the end of all things is a hand. Get a grip on this. See that for the sake of your prayers. The return is drawing near and the judgment of God looms and the last days are days full of difficulty and hardship. And here at the end, the world around us is going to rage like a great sea and everything you lean on is going to fall apart. And on top of that, temptation will redouble. It's everything in you wants just something to feel good. Just something to be easy and smooth. You're going to need help resisting the call of the world. Need help not to live for what's here, but perishing. To live looking at the future. Need help facing the persecution, yes. Need help facing the cold shoulder of those around you, yes. But need help for yourself to walk with God. And need help for your loved ones who are drawn away. Need help as you, as you interact with friends and people you care about who don't see it. And you can't talk them into it. Need help as you, as you face the reality of, of the, the judgment is, is ready and at hand and I interact with people who don't see it and don't care, but I do for them. You have no power to fight that fight and no power to win it and little power even to, to control your own heart and the endurance is needed, but you are weak. Do you see all of that? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it?
The good news is God said, over here, you can't, I can. And not just telling you to pray, I'm telling you to look at why you need to pray. And when you look at why you need to pray, you're going to think, oh my goodness, I need to pray. And then you will. And I never fail to give the Holy Spirit to him who asks. Jesus taught that in the Gospel of Luke. We need to live now, here, seeing that the end of all things is at hand and be really very gripped by that and realize everything here is perishing. And in the meantime, things are challenging and I don't have them under control. I don't have them under control. But Christian, far from being a statement that is disappointing, this should be a statement that is encouraging because you've got a friend who does have it all under control. You have one who was raised from the dead, has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And he says, call on me. I will hear you, and I sit at the right hand of God, ready to intercede in your moment of weakness, in your time of need. Ask, and I will hear. Seek, and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. Why should you look around? You have a great need, and you have a great provider. There is much to be realistic and honest about here as we look at the end of ourselves and at the end of all other things. Truth to be grasped, but I hope and pray that what you leave here with is not just truth and certainly not sorrow. Christian, leave here with truth and hope. The gospel has saved you and you will live again. And the gospel has meant that Christ is for you, ready to answer your cries in time of need. That's good news all around. Unique to you. A blessing for you, the Christian in Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us, please. Help us to be realistic and honest and then hopeful. God, help us, please. There are some of us here, Lord, who face particular challenges even at this moment. Draw near, please. Answer, please. I don't know what those needs would be, but you do. cry out to you and look to you to be the God who comes and answers. Meet your people, Lord. Hold us. Carry us all the way through the end onto the life that is to come. This is why you came for us, to rescue us. So carry it out, please. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.